Hi, and welcome to Processing Pros, a series through Ear on Processing. On this series, we're joined by engineers, executives, and other thought leaders in the process manufacturing sector to cover a variety of topics you need to know to better manage your industrial process operations and to maximize product quality output and profitability. And now, on to the episode. Hi, I'm Nate Todd, Senior Editor of Processing, and I'm joined today by Jack Gilbert, Principal Engineering Consultant at Pneumatic Conveying Consultant. Jack holds BS and MS degrees in Mechanical Engineering from Penn State University and has 50 years of experience in the application, design, detailed engineering, installation, and operation of pneumatic conveying systems. He's a frequent speaker at conferences such as the International Powder and Bolt Solids Conference and Exhibition, and has written many articles on pneumatic conveying. Thanks for speaking with me today, Jack. That's my pleasure, Nate. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. We first met uh, when I was an editor at Powder and Bulk Engineering Magazine, where you co-authored the long-running column, Pneumatic Points to Ponder, and regularly presented webinars with the late Paul Solt, who passed away in 2019. Paul started Pneumatic Conveying Consultants in the 1980s, I believe. Uh, how did your partnership with Paul begin, and what was his impact on the field of pneumatic conveying? Very interesting. When I graduated from Penn State in 1973, my first job was at the Fuller Company in Catastrophe, Pennsylvania, as a design engineer in the pneumatic conveying group. And I, when I was given my tour of the facility, and which included the research and development center, I met Paul because Paul was working at that time at Fuller in the research department. So uh, over my career, most of my career there, uh, at least for the first eight years of that career, I interfaced with Paul quite a bit on customer testing, new projects, product development. And then in uh, the early, I think it was 1980, exactly the year that Paul retired from Fuller, and he started doing the private consulting work with direct end users. He started doing the uh, points to uh, ponder column and giving a lot of presentations because we, we knew there was a gap between what the end user knew about pneumatic conveying. It was being so limited as to what he could gather from vendors information and from technical papers that might be available from scientists who ran academic tests in a, in a lab that had a one inch diameter clear tube handling BBs or something. And uh, that the market needed to know more about pneumatic conveying from the practical standpoint. And that was Paul's mission to, to take, the, take the black art or the smoke and mirror uh, concept of pneumatic conveying and bring it out of the closet, if you will, into the end user's hands. And that was the goal of Points to Ponder, the presentations that he made, uh, the, the talks he would give at the powder conference. So I think the initial impact he made was actually getting information into the hands of the end users. So they knew better what the vendors were selling them. They could do a better job evaluating what the vendors were offering and could actually play a, a participative role in the decision-making process of what to buy and what type of equipment to obtain. 
And uh, so how, and how did your, um, how did you join the company then? Well, over after Paul retired, we, I was still steep Paul at different conferences and in customer lobbies and hotel elevators. So we were still attending the same uh, technical and, you know, trade shows and things like that. And uh, Paul would always say to me, Jack, you should come work for me. And I said, Paul, we could never get along together. And, and that went on for uh, almost uh, 15 years. And then finally, when I decided to leave the industry in 2004 and, and get into the consulting business myself, I called Paul and said, Paul, we always talked about getting together. And I always said we can never work together, but now I think maybe we can. And Paul, you know, Paul always had a, a tremendous sense of humor, which made the teaching of the technology and the science easier on the end users. But Paul said, Jack, you know, I've been thinking about it and you're probably right. We can never work together. And that's how, that's how we got started on that, on that joke. And we hooked nice. up in 2004 and for the, from between 2004 and 2010, I actually worked essentially for Paul under his company, the, the name was the same pneumatic conveying consultant, but he ran it as a very informal, informal sole proprietorship in 2010. And Paul was quite a few years older than I was. So we had different horizons. Uh, I was uh, looking for uh, to do more work, to grow pneumatic conveying consultants, take it into markets and areas that Paul really didn't have that enthusiasm much anymore. So we agreed it was time that maybe I took over the company and Paul would work for me on a, on a, on a consulting basis because he was getting to the point uh, where he was having a little more difficulty traveling and things like that from a, a physical standpoint. So from 2010 until 2019, those nine years, we were still together, but, uh, I ran the, it was my, it was, I ran the company and we incorporated as a LLC and uh, we were taking it to a higher level. So essentially we spent about uh, almost what, 19, 20 years together in the business. And then, uh, like you say, in, in, two, in 2019, Paul passed away and I continue and still continue the, the uh, business, a lot of it in, 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 in his legacy and in memory of him and try to continue not just his mission of educating the, the uh, end user market, but also teaching them and, 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 and providing technical service services directly to the end user market to accomplish those goals that Paul wanted. We don't sell equipment, we don't compete against the equipment suppliers, but because, but because of that, and the vendors all know that we don't compete with them, we have opportunities to work with, with them if we're trying to solve a problem at a end user facility where the vendor has equipment installed. They're not, they don't, you know, they don't shy away from working with us because they know we're helping their customer as well solve a problem. We're not competing against them to sell equipment. That makes sense. Uh, you mentioned uh, wanting to expand the business into different markets. Um, what industries and markets do you primarily work with or or most frequently work with? In yeah, today, market? I would say I, I, I spend the majority of my time in 
in three different market segments. One is the cement industry. The second would be plastics and petrochemicals. And the third is minerals would be the three major segments. But I get involved in, in food and pharmaceutical on a smaller scale. Uh, basically, uh, any industry I can help because the, the, the technology and the science are applicable to everything. It's just that the nature of the specific materials that each industry uses is what dictates how we apply some of those different principles and, and sciences. Okay. And what are some of the most common conveying problems companies face? I would say the majority are problems that either involve a loss of capacity in the system over years the the rate for which they bought the system is going down for whatever reason uh, and then also people who are make a who make a product who want to retain the integrity and the quality of that product through the conveying process are finding that their products are being damaged uh, we call it degradation or they or they or they make different grades or different colors of the same product and they're getting contamination between the bins so which means uh, okay. maybe some of the diverter valves are leaking but it's 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 either either pertaining to the capacity of the system the protection of the of the product quality or more recently ways to try to consume less energy as well because energy is not only becoming more expensive it's becoming less available in certain parts of the country. So we're trying to help them reduce their energy costs as well. And what in what ways can you help reduce energy costs in a pneumatic system? Well, when you think about what consumes the energy, it's the it's the, the the gas mover, whether it's a blower or a compressor uh, that provides the conveying uh, gas, that's the biggest single contributor to energy. And then there are going to be some smaller components, some rotary feeders, rotary airlocks, which tend to be very small. So we focus on what can we do to reduce the horsepower or the energy of those gas movers. And uh, we can do things like, we call it stepping the cavey line to reduce the pressure in the system. Because the more pressure you need, the higher the horsepower. We look at the velocity profile to be sure we're not moving the material too quickly in the pipeline because the volume of the gas is another contributor to the energy consumption. So by you, by first analyzing what they're doing and the results they're getting versus what they, what they need to get, we can make adjustments. But then also one of the biggest changes we've seen in pneumatic conveying over the year is the ability to use instrumentation and, and automation to, to uh, gather what we call real-time operating data. And we can use that real-time data through the use of variable speed drives on the blower packages uh, to help optimize the system. So we were doing online adjustments of the speed and the volumes to match the material and the capacity in the system. Uh, so right. by doing that, we can get them to basically the lowest energy point we can. And then, but we can't lose sight of also what we call the solids loading ratio. How many pounds of product per pound of air? Because in, in, my, in my view and what I always tell people, 
for me looking to give you the most efficient system, I want to find a way to give you a system that transfers the most material, the many and most pounds of material per pound of the of the gas that we're using, be it air or nitrogen. So that combination of real-time data with VFDs, not only do we optimize velocity and pressure, but we can also optimize the solids loading ratio. And all that results in an efficient, lower energy requirements to the system. And, and when you talk about stepping the, the conveying line, you're talking about actually increasing the diameter of the conveying line over yeah, the exactly course of right. the run? Yeah, amazingly. And what is the, how is that a benefit? Well, it's a benefit because if you imagine you have a system, I'll just pick numbers as an example. Let's say you have a pipeline that's a four inch diameter pipe and it's 600 feet long and you're moving the gas and material. And that pressure drop in that system to move that material that distance might be 20 PSIG, pounds per square inch gauge pressure. If I went to a be just a bigger size pipe all the way. I went to a six inch pipe, same capacity, same distance. I could probably lower the pressure from 20 PSI down to 12 PSI. But to do that, because the pipe is big, I have to increase the volume of the gas. So okay. what I save on pressure, I might offset by a gain in volume and gain no benefit energy wise. By, by taking that four inch pipe, and somewhere along the length of that pipe, stepping it from a four inch pipe up to a five, and depending on the length, maybe we step it again up to a six. By the time it gets to the destination point, now we can start off with the same volume of gas that we had. And because part of the distance of the pipe is in five inch and then six inch, we reduce that pressure drop in the system accordingly. So that's how we start saving the energy by, by increasing the pipe diameter along its length. At, when I say the right location, we have to be sure that the point we step at, we still have adequate velocity at that point in the larger pipe's cross-sectional area to step to that bigger size. Okay. And today so we, have, we have the ability to actually pretty accurately predict where those points are. Okay, so you're finding the optimal um, operating pressures and, and velocities at each point during the thing instead of just picking one and going with it for the entire run. Correctly, that's correct. Excellent. And um, you, I, you've written a lot about the different conveying phases in pneumatic systems. Can you talk about the different conveying phases and sure. what determines there, there... which phase you want to operate in? Absolutely. There are basically what we call three different when we talk about the phase of conveying, we're talking about what's happening inside the pipeline. We're not talking about whether it's a vacuum or a pressure system. Those are what we call the types of systems. The phase is, is relative to what's taking place inside the pipe and the interaction of the particles of material and the moving gas stream. So the three phases are dilute phase conveying, in which all the particles are in complete suspension in the pipeline. Every particle is, is free to contact the pipe wall, hit the changes of hit the elbows, where you change direction, bang into each other. That loop phase is also a relatively low 
solids to air ratio. Complete opposite of that is dense phase conveying, where we talk about very high solids to low to air ratios because we're trying to minimize the, the, the airflow to run at the lowest velocity so we have more material conveying in mass flow rather than being in total suspension as in dilute phase conveying. Because in dilute phase, since every particle it has the opportunity to hit the walls of the pipe, if you're handling something abrasive, you're going to wear out your pipes and elbows faster. If you're handling something that's degradable, you're going to do more damage to the product in dilute phase conveying. So one of the biggest reasons that dense phase came, came into, into fruition was to run at low velocities and higher solids loading ratios. So you have less material available to either cause abrasive wear or damage to the product itself. Okay. And then the third phase in between is what we call two-phase flow, where, you're, where you have part of the pipe running at a denser phase in the lower section of the pipe, like a fluidized bed, and then the upper section of the pipe is basically in dilute phase conveying. Because okay. not all materials can really run in true dense phase, but they can run in the two-phase flow. Okay, but the material that's kind of settled at the bottom of the pipe isn't stationary. It's moving, but it's it's uh, it's not airborne. Correct. That... It's moving okay. in a in, in a fluidized bed mode, like a wave formation through the bottom of the pipe. Okay, and so what? And uh, you know, how do you determine other than like? I mean, maybe give me some examples. I mean, you mentioned that uh, really abrasive materials, you might want to do dense phase or really fragile materials, you might want to do dense phase. Correct. What uh, what would be uh, materials that you would do in mixed phase? Well, actually, those materials can also be in mixed phase. It's the function of the particles, the particle shape and the particle size, because the, the definition, by, by, by definition, we look at what we call the material saltation velocity, that term. And that's the velocity of the gas at which if you have a particle in that gas stream and its saltation velocity, which is calculated based on the particle uh, size, the particle mass, the, the gas that you're using, the viscosity of the gas, the rate of the system, all those go into an equation and it tells you what that minimum velocity has to be to keep that particle in, in suspension. And if you go below that, salt, that velocity, that saltation velocity, it will start to drop out in the, in, the, in the gas stream and start laying down in the bottom of the pipe. So what happens is for a lot of materials, the materials will begin to fall out of the gas stream because it's at a low, it has a higher saltation velocity factor than the velocity of the gas. But as you build that layer in the bottom of the pipe, what you're actually doing is decreasing that inside pipe diameter, which means the rest of the gas automatically is going faster. So oh, you reach okay. that point that what used to be a velocity below saltation may now be a little bit above saltation, so the rest of that material will stay in dilute phase. But you mentioned that sand, for example, you know, if you conveyed sand in, in dilute phase conveying, because of its size and its shape, 
we're going to be probably around three thirty-five hundred, four thousand 4,000 or so feet per minute velocity, which would do a lot of damage to the pipe. Sand is one of those materials that can run in dense phase in this fluidized form of slug flow, if you will. And you may be down as low as at the pickup point, eight or 900 feet per minute. So it's a factor of two to three to four times the lower velocity. And we know that the abrasive wear that takes place and the damage to a material is a function of that average velocity but it's not linear, it's exponential. It's a factor of three or four times. So anything we can do for a customer that's suffering from abrasive wear or damage to the material, anything we can do to lower that overall velocity profile will help him tremendously reduce his, his, his uh, wear on the material and the need for replacement parts so often or reduce that damage being done to his product. Okay. And you mentioned uh, vacuum versus pressure systems. Uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the applications for each of those and the differences? Sure. sure. That's what we call the type of system. And, and what differentiates a vacuum system from a pressure system basically is the location of the gas mover. In a vacuum system, we actually put the gas mover at the very end of the system. And at the pickup point, in the beginning, we're sucking in the ambient air. No different than if you had a vacuum cleaner at home and you had a six-foot-long hose. At the end of that hose, you're sucking in air from your, from your local environment into that hose, picking up material. It's going through your canister, through your filter, and then out of the vacuum cleaner. A pressure system would be if you connected your outlet of your vacuum cleaner to that hose and you, and you had the same hose and you put it down on the floor, now you're blowing that material. Then you would have to ex, ex, put, actually blow it into another pipe to move it to a collection point. So you're in a pressure system, you're picking up, you're bringing air in through the intake of the blower, but at the pickup point, you're at the pressure of the system, a positive pressure rather than a slight negative pressure. Now, advantages, a vacuum system is typically lower cost. And because on Earth we have this, this uh, uh, barometric pressure limitation of about 30 inches of mercury, we, there's no way you can pull more than that vacuum, even with a mechanical device. So because of that limitation on available vacuum or negative pressure, we can't go as far distance as we can with a pressure system or as high as capacity as a pressure system because if we need more pressure, we can just add on another, another stage to a compressor and go higher. There is no limitation on pressure we can develop other than the ability of the equipment to withstand that pressure. So typically, and I say only say typically because it's a relative number or a relative discussion, short distance and, and, and lower capacity. I can't pressure, I can talk about the longest system I'm familiar with where we're conveying a, a cement material over a mile and a quarter long. 
You could never do a system that long in a vacuum, in a single system, in stages, sure, but that's not economical. Okay. So it depends on A, the capacity you want to achieve and the distance you want to go. Now, environmentally speaking, a vacuum system, you can, a lot of people use that to clean up spills in their plant, where they have a bagging line or a boxing line where they're packaging their product and there's a, a bag breaks or tears and all that material falls to the floor. Uh, that happens a lot in packaging operations. Well, there, if you're using a vacuum system, you can just hook up your hose and clean that mess right up. So it's a very envi environmentally uh, friendlier system. In a pressure system, if there's a leak, you're gonna know it very quickly because you're blowing that material directly into your environment. Because the, the pressure is inside the pipe pushing outward instead of uh, the, the, the airflow. Correct, the airflow correct. was going to escape the pipe rather than go into the pipe. Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, so you mentioned with a vacuum system, you know, you just have the open end of the nozzle like in your home vacuum. Uh, how do you get material into a pressure system? A pressure system needs what we call a line charger. That's the piece of equipment that brings the material from the source from which it's coming. It might be a silo or a bin or a super sack, a bulk bag uh, coming off of a screw conveyor. It may be coming directly off your process. If you're making something as it comes out of your process, it has to go through a line charger who is going to let that material enter the higher pressure system air flow in the pipeline below at the right capacity and also prevent that higher pressure air from blowing back up into your mm. system. That's why we call a, an airlock, if you will. The feeder aspect controls the rate, the airlock aspect mitigates that leakage. It can't stop it completely because you have clearances between, if it's a rotary type valve, there has to be a clearance uh, between the rotor and the body. And because of that pressure differential, there'll always be a small leakage, but that's the function of the line charger. And there's, depending on the pressure of the system, the type of material you're conveying, the temperature of the material, you have a choice of four or five different types of line chargers also that can be used. Okay. And and um, you talked about on, the, on your home vacuum, you know, you have the filter in the uh, canister to separate the air from the material. How, how is that generally done? What are the different options for pneumatic conveying systems? If you're handling a material that has no dust, let's say I had the opportunity to convey BBs, metal BBs. Well, we know there's no dust in the BBs. So I can just collect that material into a receiving hopper or a cyclone type receiver with no filter and the material will all fall out the bottom and the air will go out through the top, through the atmosphere. If I'm handling something like sugar, which I know is going to be very dusty at the end, or a cement material, or anything that has particulate and dust, when we convey into the receiver, we'll also go through a filter, just like in your vacuum cleaner, but it's proportional to size. Instead of being a small filter, like in your, in your stop back that may be eight inch diameter by eight inches tall, we're talking about filtration systems that are 
eight or 10 foot long or more, multiple cartridges or multiple bags, depending on the total volume of gas in the system. But the concept is the same. We're passing the dusty air through a filter membrane to collect that dust before it goes out to the environment. Got it. And, and um, are there materials that can't or generally shouldn't be conveyed pneumatically? I can tell you that there, a lot of people think they can't convey materials which are toxic or hazardous or combustible. Uh, because, wow, I think I can't put gunpowder in the same pipeline as air. Well, essentially, you can. And, you, and we do handle a lot of toxic materials or combustible materials uh, because we can use an inert gas. We don't have to use air or oxygen. We do a lot of work, and not just we, but the industry as a whole does a lot of work in handling combustible products using nitrogen or argon or an inert product. And keep in mind, for, for combustion to take place, you do need the fuel, which is the material, and you do need air, but you also need ignition. And that's, that's, part, that's the part of the industry today where there are great uh, changes that have been made over the years by OSHA and, and NFPA regarding handling combustible materials. And if you are using air in your system, there's a lot of requirements for adding more equipment, more devices, explosion panels, uh, 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 flame arresters, quick acting isolation valves. So if you did have an event take place, which normally is going to occur in the dust collector part of the system, because that's where all your fine dust is. And that's what tends to ignite with a spark or with a, uh, a high, high heat source. So. Today, we have the ability to handle all those different applications. Now, is it the most economical? That's, that's another question. We know that the more exotic the system gets to handle the special nature of the material, costs will be going up. But as an alternative to trying to handle those same materials mechanically in, on belt conveyors or screws or elevators, pneumatic conveying will typically win that battle hands down every time okay um so you mentioned the explosion protection devices that have come up you talked earlier about um instrumentation uh are there any other trends or technological advancements that you see impacting the industry i would say the the uh, intellectual ability to to collect all that information quickly analyze it and convert it into a usable, it's, it's, I won't say it's, it's, I will say it's like uh, uh, AI, right? Uh, the, the, the new buzzword going around is that, yeah. uh, well, actually, Paul was probably the first guy to actually try to apply that to pneumatic surveying, because back in 1983, he actually developed a, a, a software that would, the customer would just simply answer questions that would come up, describing the kind of problems they had. And using that artificial intelligence, they could, Paul would help be able to almost over the phone, tell them how to solve their problem. So Interesting. that was the earliest form probably of, uh, of that technology. Nice. But that, so AI and that, that's uh, happening today as well? Well, I think it will be. I it think will be. 
AI is going to be doing everything eventually, uh, for the most part. And okay. and right now, but but it exists. We have the capability, and uh, that's how we can troubleshoot better and optimize systems better. Because instrumentation used to cost a lot of money. Today, it's much lower cost, and there's yeah. so much more available in, in in terms of information that can be gathered and the reliability of that information and the speed at which it can be. Uh, assessed and analyzed and, and put together into a, a a form that you can use it to almost in real time if you're sensing a higher pressure drop in that system within milliseconds later that blower is already either slowing down or speeding up to try to okay. overcome it in fact even in dense phase dense phase has probably has been the biggest ben beneficiary of that advancement in automation because now we have uh, air management systems that are monitoring every possible parameter in the system, including that leakage factor we talked about, temperature change in the system, uh, the speed of the rotor, the speed of the compressor, the uh, everything, the back pressure in the system, all that is being monitored all the time and is constantly changing the other parameters accordingly. How about modeling software, discrete element method modeling. Uh, you hear a lot about that. Is that advanced enough to kind of accurately demonstrate what a system would do with particles? Or I think that... it's getting better. I won't say it's it's at the point now where it's 100% reliable, uh, but it is getting better. And I think eventually, given time and the ability to correlate that to actual performance, I think it, it 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 will get better as time goes on. That's part of what I said is, is it's available as a tool we can use to help more quickly understand what's happening in a system to make those recommendations. What do you need to consider when making modifications to an existing pneumatic system? Because a lot of times you have a system that's installed and then you know plants make changes. Right. That, that's a question that really pertains to what it is they want to achieve and what okay. the problem is. Uh, you know, let, let's say, for example, system they have is working fine today, but now the production manager says, hey, we're going to be changing one of our raw material in our process. And that's going to let us produce 20% more material with our same process. How now you have to be sure that the conveying system doesn't become the bottleneck and it can handle 20% more material. And that's where we start applying those tools like line stepping and, and, that, and that type of thing to make an existing system be able to handle more material. So as long as the product doesn't change its physical characteristics, we can change pipe diameter and blower speed and bigger filters to get more capacity. If they say, uh, well, we're running fine today, but now we're going to make a new product. And it's going to be a little bit different than the product we made before. It's going to be finer in particle size, or maybe it's going to be heavier in, in, the, in its particle density, or maybe it's going to be a little more cohesive than the other property. Now we have to go back and look at a lot more. Now we have to say, well, just now do, what pressure do we need? And maybe it's a case where, well, in that pipe you have now, 
we're going to have to put in a compressor or go to a higher pressure system to move that material than the blower package because blowers have a pressure limitation. And if the existing system was already at the limit for, for that type of device, we may have to change the actual piece of equipment itself. Or we may have to change the type of pipe. We have maybe this newer sticky material is going to work better in a stainless steel pipe as compared to the old carbon steel pipe. Mm -hmm. So depending on what the nature of the problem is, we, it can be a relatively easy fix to, uh, to, to achieve the goals, or it may get more complex. Okay. So finally, um, what's one tip or principle that everyone operating a pneumatic conveying system should remember? Is there one, one basic thing that can help anybody? Well, I would say yes, but it's in two parts. So it's okay. a two-part answer. That's okay. We can do that. All right. Part one is velocity profile. The speed at which you're conveying your material can be your best friend or it can be your worst enemy because it can make the system wear out very quickly and you're, in the, and you're keeping your vendors in spare part business or it can do a lot of damage to your product. So knowing your product and finding the right velocity profile is, is the best thing you can do for your system. The second part is, I mentioned it before, that solids to gas, that loading ratio. How many pounds of product per pound of air can you get? Because the more pounds of product you can move per pound of air, the higher, the higher efficiency you're achieving in your system. And you're not wasting energy. You're not just burning horsepower. You're, you're moving product with every ounce of energy you have. So those are the two things, velocity profile and solid loading ratio. Sounds good. Well, thanks for uh, joining me today. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Jack. Nate, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Ear On Processing. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting app and share our episodes with colleagues that could find the information we share helpful.